Welcome to the Rhonda Grant Show, Tom. Rhonda, thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Uh, let the audience know a little bit about your background so that we may go on this journey together. Oh, that's great. And, and thanks for asking. You know, everybody in life has a journey, right? So uh, mine's been kind of a, a pretty particular journey in so much as that I, was, I grew up in a family where my father was a journalist and uh, did a lot of work, environmental journalism and uh, conservation work. And that probably set me up for what I do today. But uh, back then, a journalist didn't make much money. And when I watched my dad mm -hmm. trying to struggle to get through every day and feed two young growing boys in the Midwest, I, I realized that I wanted to do something a little different, and uh, but still do the things I love to do in the outdoors. So I ended up getting a degree in communications and, and mm -hmm. working in the film business and then working in Hollywood for a short period of time. And realized I didn't like that lifestyle that much. And then uh, got into the, the television commercial production world, did Shark Week for Discovery Channel when I was 24, their, their premiere wow. show for the season and uh, as a producer and just, just kind of as a filmmaker, just kind of basically just wanted to see where the world would take me. And as projects come up, you just go to where they are and you produce the projects and then you wait till the phone, the call, and you know, phone, the, you know, the ring and somebody else has got another project and you just keep going and going and going. And so, uh, but I was pretty lucky. I worked a lot of products in the kind of the outdoor world, you know, from boats, marine work, underwater, to, you know, commercials to oh, yes. uh, all kinds of stuff in the outdoors, uh, trucks and, you know, a lot of stuff out of Detroit automotive stuff and uh, was pretty lucky to have a, a really great career doing that and then you know had a, a television show on NBC sports about outdoor field sports and then come the end of uh, 2018 going into 2020 there things were starting to slow down and COVID hit and all mm -hmm. the business I had uh, basically evaporated like for many people that have yeah. <laughs> self-employed that needed yeah. to travel and do things so so from that point forward it was like okay and uh, I'd worked with various groups and, and other communicators over the years about trying to figure out you know the best way to just to talk about conservation and try to educate people about how important it is to to take care of our planet to ensure mm -hmm. that we've got you know healthy forest and vibrant wildlife populations I mean clean drinking water I mean, we all need that. And, mm -hmm. uh, and there's a way to talk about it without, you know, bashing people over the head. And uh, so we formed a, a little nonprofit, myself and a bunch of outdoor filmmakers and wildlife photographers called the, the uh, Shepherds of Wildlife Society, mm -hmm. 501c3, that basically its mission is to kind of reconnect modern society with nature. You know, we saw this huge disconnect out there where people, oh, yes. you know, when they get up in the morning, you know, they flip a switch, you expect the lights to come on. You don't really know where electricity comes from. You just know that light needs to come on. Mm -hmm. And the next thing is, is walk in the bathroom, flush the toilet out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. And then you know, it's down at the corner at Starbucks or some other coffee shop. You know, is it a chai latte or a caramel macchiato? Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, you know, that's not how the majority of the world lives you know two-thirds of the world doesn't have the kinds of of wonderment we have as as a society here in the western world and north america and europe you know we have access to some just incredible things and uh but most people are trying to figure out where the next meal is going to come from mm -hmm. and you know they make decisions you know based on that and we make decisions based on whatever we think we need every day and unfortunately some of those decisions aren't always made in the best interest of wildlife wildlife habitat we've been looking at what man's been doing all over the world with these photographers that work with us and other filmmakers and it's not a pretty sight we're losing wildlife habitat all over the world it's just not what's going in in the rainforest of brazil it's most of africa now is devoid of of good quality habitat it's basically the lands are slashed and burned in order to try to grow crops on substandard soils and trying to grow things like maize, which is a North American product that needs a lot of fertilizer, needs good soils and needs a lot mm -hmm. of water. And uh, with climate change, there's a lot of that doesn't work very well anymore. Yet uh, most people in Africa love to have their uh, mealy meal made with ground corn. Mm -hmm. And so, which sorghum has historically been the uh, crop that they have grown over you know, the millennia. And so now they've switched over to maize. And it doesn't work very well. So you have this really difficult situation where, you know, these people are slashing and burning the lands and then they're overgrazing them. 
And then you've got large populations of people expanding into these areas that once used to be for wildlife. And, you know, we're seeing that, you know, we've seen it all over the world, but we're seeing it all over Africa right now also. And uh, there's no place for the wildlife to live. And then you have that human wildlife conflict. And then of course the wildlife always loses, you know, the elephant loses, the lion loses, you know, the plains game when they have no food, then they die also. So But that's the legacy that as humans, as a species that we're leaving on this planet. And it's important, you know, why we created the nonprofit was try to educate people about the importance of those decisions you make every day, because you do make decisions that can have very positive impacts and also very negative impacts. And it's, it's not one that I think that we do any of this on purpose, but I think it's most importantly, people understand it's just, we just don't know. And when we don't know, uh, it's just a matter of, if someone can educate us yes. and in this day and age, you know, with social media, mainstream media, you know, with the internet, everybody has information at, at their fingertips in a nanosecond. And it's important that we make sure that the information they get and how they consume it, which is like video, you know, look at TikTok and everything else. They want to see video. They want to see it real in 3D. And so it's important that we get this message out about the importance of what we do, uh, you know, and the things that we need to do as a society and as a species so that we can ensure that we're going to have healthy ecosystems, that we're going to have vibrant wildlife populations and for all creatures to live in, not just us, but everything that's out there. And that's, uh, you know, one of the things I've discovered over the years of working on these projects is that, you know, as a species, you know, man really hasn't figured out how to be a good neighbor with the rest of the creatures on the planet. And I don't mean to say that is like, hey, I'm some, you know, you know, greeny guy who's out there trying to save the world. I'm a realist. And the reality mm-hmm. is, is we're not going to have wildlife in these places because if we don't have habitat, there's going to be no reason that wildlife won't exist. Mm-hmm. And so we've got to ensure that we have these healthy ecosystems. And because there are so many humans, 8 billion now on the planet, we're, we're putting more and more pressure on all these ecosystems to provide for ourselves, provide food and drinking water and everything else we need to survive. Uh, but we need to start thinking about doing things smart. And, and basically what we've been able to determine over the last oh, five years that I've been working on these projects is that conservation is a word that most people don't understand what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, you see things on social media, you see headlines, you know, X amount you know, of conservation groups do this and conservation groups do that. But when I start looking into what, who these groups are and who these people are, I have to ask the question, if you look in Webster's Dictionary, the definition of conservation is the wise use of a natural resource. I mean, the, the two examples they give is water conservation. Okay? So when you start to run out of drinking water in Los Angeles or, or Cape Town, South Africa, mm-hmm. the government says, hey, conserve the water. Let's not wash our, you know, maybe we don't need to wash everything every day, or maybe we don't water the grass, that kind of thing. But the other antidote is wildlife conservation. And that's, you know, it's a renewable natural resource. And what we've really come to understand understand is if wildlife doesn't provide a value to humans, and it's not just seeing the animal, but it has to be a monetary value in many cases, uh, and especially to a very specific segment of our community. And those are the rural indigenous communities all over the world. If they can see a value of having that wildlife you know, in their backyards, where they live, where they're competing with them, whether it's for their crops or just the fact that that wildlife may be dangerous to them uh, Mm -hmm. in the case of elephants and lions and bears and things like that, grizzly bears. If they can see a value to it, then they have way more apt to take care of it and to ensure that it has a place in the society and, and within their world of things and their sphere of influence. And so what we really try to do as an organization is tell the stories and, and, and give these rural indigenous communities a voice on the world stage, because so often it's this whole classic rural versus urban conflict. You have the vast majority of the people living in that urban interface, living in cities, mega cities, suburbanites, and they have no idea yeah. what it is like to live with wildlife yet they're the ones because they have the political block the political you know horsepower because they have the votes that the politicians want to listen to these people about what needs to happen and what doesn't need to happen and then what you end up is is a situation where the people who actually live with the wildlife they, they don't have a voice they don't have anybody standing up for them and so it's really important that it's going to be those people that take care of those resources. It's not going to be the people living in London or Madrid or Los Angeles or Toronto. It's going to be the people that are out there on the countryside. And, you know, for a tribal member and a community to put up with elephants raiding their crops 
or potentially a lion walking amongst them uh, and their children, you know, they, they have to figure out ways where they see some sort of financial benefit to having it. And so there's a lot of ways that can happen. Everything from photo safari tourism, which it works in certain places because you have to have some serious infrastructure. But mm-hmm. with that infrastructure, you also have to have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people come and visit. And when you do that, I mean, that's, let's look at it realistically. You have to have mm-hmm. roads, you have to have lodges, you have to have electricity, you have to have septic fields and septic you know, ways to treat the sewage. You have to have all kinds of traffic going around. So it creates noise pollution. You have to have lights everywhere so people can see to walk where they go. So you have light pollution. Then you have to truck in all this food. Yeah, it just goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And then you also have a situation where you have all these people in one place that are constantly coming by to see the animals. Well, then the animals become habituated to the humans and they're no longer wild. You know, you basically have a walking zoo. And so what we look at as an organization is that we need to keep these places wild. And then we also need to look at other ways that actually work. And one of the ways that we embrace is what we call modern conservation, you know, the active conservation of of wildlife. And a lot of people say, well, what is that? Well, encompasses wise use, which is the definition of conservation. And back in the late 1800s, guys like George Berg Grinnell, Teddy Roosevelt here in, in the United States, you know, they, they kind of ushered in this modern conservation ethos. They started this thing called the Boone and Crockett Club. It was based around trying to, to recognize the, the different species of animals in North America and what our earlier settlers and colonists had come here. You know, my family goes back to the early 1600s in North America and and, uh, you know, my ancestors weren't very nice to the wildlife and they, and they certainly weren't very nice to the habitat because in the name of progress, we bulldoze down things, we cut down the trees and built railroads and it's all stuff, you know, it's all things that, you know, we, it's what we didn't know any better and we did those things, but we also overutilized the wildlife and we thought the wildlife was an infinite resource, just like we mm-hmm. thought the trees were an infinite resource, but they aren't. Everything is finite on this planet. There's only so many resources that we can utilize and we have to do it in a a smart way because if we don't, we lose it all. Again, Mm -hmm. to get humanity back, this modern age, to to get to that point where, okay, how can we do modern conservation? Well, in this case, you know, what we saw in Africa was Killing the Shepherd, the film that we produced and came out last year. It was a film about a rural community led by a woman chief uh, in remote Zambia who basically wanted to break the bonds of poverty by waging a war against wildlife poaching. And they live in an area that's the size of the state of Delaware or Grand Canyon National Park, a little over a million acres. And these people had been used to their subsistence farmers, but uh, they're having issues trying to grow maize. As I mentioned earlier, you know, it's how difficult it is there in certain parts of Africa. And and the wildlife was always something they could use. If you needed to get an antelope to put in the larder or the pot, you could feed your family, whatnot. But because of some government actions, they actually banned the safari hunting business in 2001 and 2002. And what it did is it created a void because prior to then the safari hunting operators that were there that were assisting people like they're in the film here, you know, they, they're seeing a value of having the wildlife and with that value that allows them to pay to, to have the game scouts out there patrolling against the, the poaching of wildlife. And so in this case, you remove people from the land. There's no financial incentive to be there. And then the poachers moved in from the city and Lusaka, which is the capital of Zambia is only about a four or five hour drive from this area. So, and there's a paved road that runs right by it. So it's a great conduit to bring things like bushmeat, which is a $2 billion industry in illegal black market industry in Africa today, according to the UN. So what happened is these people moved in the poachers, they built villages in the middle of the largest concentrations of wildlife makes sense. And they went out and killed everything they could dried the meat and brought it into the, you know, took it to the market. And, you know, bushmeat is kind of a, for people who don't really understand, it's kind of a, it's not a right to these people, but they've been eating bushmeat. I mean, it's you know, been eating it for a long time. The, the mm-hmm. people of Africa and Africa is a big place. Remember it's a continent, yeah. you know, it's not a country. Mm-hmm. And, but it doesn't matter if you're talking to people in Nigeria or you're talking to people in South Africa, which are, you know, tens of thousands of miles apart, they look at bushmeat as being a, an important part of their culture. 
And so, you know, we have all this history in, in Africa with, you know, the colonization by European powers. And now we have things going on with China, trying to get natural resources, you know, and, and the Russians and everything. It, it's just, we're in a point right now where these people don't know which way is up half the time, you know? And so in the particular subject area where we film, which is the kingdom of Shekabeta, we were told about a story. I was actually in uh, Atlanta doing a presentation to conservation, wildlife conservation groups. And at the end of it, I had this gentleman come up to me and this Zambian, you know, accent, which is not mm -hmm. South African and it's not English. And uh, he started to tell me the story about this area that had been game depleted uh, because of poaching. And it was a government designation, uh, a large concession area. And he was going to, he'd been there back in the 1980s and this chief had knocked on his door and said, Hey, I need some help. My people are starving. And of course the government doesn't have the resources. There's no UN uh, aid groups there. You know, there's none of these NGOs that are out there trying to help people. And uh, she just heard that this guy was honest and that uh, he might be interested in helping them. So uh, this fellow is named uh, Roland Norton. And so he went out there with his son, Alistair, and they just went to see what was going on. And it's this beautiful land. It's not the Serengeti. So it's not the this big, wide open migration area, that kind of thing. It's right on the edge of the lower end of the, the Rift Valley system that comes from Tanzania into Zambia. They talk about it potentially being the cradle of civilization for humanity, but it's also an area that was well known for the migration of large herds of elephant and Cape Buffalo. And, but it, it's very fairly thick uh, forested Mopani forest also with some rugged, me and in Montana, I call them hills, but they're mountains and with rivers running down through them that are full of crocodiles. And actually the Lewin Sanfa river that runs through this area is known as probably one of the most dangerous rivers in all of Africa for people being attacked and killed by crocodiles. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, it's a pretty difficult life there to survive. There's about 5,000 people in the, the subject area, about half of the Valley that we worked in. Uh, and so this particular fellow is Roland Norton got this call and the gal came and knocked on his door and she's like, please come out here. And so he went out there and he's like, wow, this is really great. And he'd had a dream to have a concession area of himself and revitalize it. And so he was also a hunting operator. And so he looked at it like, well, there is no hunting, but I can see that there's a potential. There were still a few pockets, small pockets of wildlife in different parts of the area. And so he said, but the first thing we need to do is we need to come up with a, with an economic model that will also provide a protein source for these people. So they're not going to continue to kill the wildlife. And so they built a fish farm that had five, 30,000 gallon above ground tanks to grow fish, which typically for them would be the native fishes, tilapia, which we all heard of tilapia, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, so they were able to start this fish farm and get it up and running. And, and it did two things. It created some revenue. Uh, in the area where there is no jobs, none at all. Probably they employ somewhere in the neighborhood of between 100 and 150 people, depending on the season and time of year. And then uh, it also provided another protein source so that the people wouldn't have to kill the wildlife. And, and when they kicked this thing into gear, you know, they'd never, I mean, they'd never run an aquaculture farm, you know, before. And so they had to do a lot of research and, and they invested, a, a, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to get this thing up and running. And uh, they also had to stop the poaching that was going on. And prior to their arrival, this huge area, I think had maybe eight or 10 game scouts patrolling it. They didn't have full kit. They didn't have uniforms. They didn't even get paid sometimes for upwards of a year. Uh, so their motivation to do anything was, you know, probably next to nothing. And so the wildlife was just getting hammered. Uh, even when they first got there, they were like, they were seeing signs of poaching with the, the, the main one being snares, wire snares. You go around a water, you can find these little snares everywhere. In some cases, they're big snares, big enough for, for hippo along the river. So what they ended up doing was uh, investing some of their money in hiring about 30 or 40 scouts, I think about 36 scouts to start off with and got, got uh, some surplus uniforms for the, for the scouts and were able to get them boots and get them uh, radios. They put a radio repeater tower at one of the high points there in the concession area. And they started working on trying to eradicate the poaching, which entails a lot of time. Uh, you know, a lot of boots on the ground, checking areas, looking for and listening for poachers. And first, 
few years that they started on this, they were able to apprehend a, a fairly large number of poachers. They were these villages that were built up by poachers in the middle of the area were disbanded very quickly and the people left uh, and they were forced out to the fringes of the concession area. So they weren't completely gone, but they had been moved out far enough so that those little pockets of areas along the river where wildlife had survived the onslaught of poaching, those populations were starting to come back. Now, so what, you know, the issue with wire snares, they are just indiscriminate and effective killing machines. Uh, one one, one uh, poacher can go out and put dozens of these things out in a day and they may check on it may find a, an impala or another antelope in it and take it out and dry the meat and sell it. But they may never check on the other, you know, 25 or 30 or 50 oh, snares. Okay. And those snares continue to kill and kill and maim. So the game scouts go around and they collect things. And I think it was about 2020, um, about the time we were just wrapping up the film. Uh, we started in 2017, we wrapped in 2020. They had removed about 17,000 snares out of the bush. And the poachers also used firearms, but they didn't use the modern firearms for the most part that we're aware of. They used as homemade shotguns and muzzleloaders. I mean, making these things out of pieces of pipe and uh, just screws. I mean, just the craziest looking, like, like, you know, Frankenstein things. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the game scouts were able to take uh, almost a hundred of those guns out of circulation in the area by apprehending the poachers. And so, you know, you get in the situation where now, you know, a snare doesn't always kill the male antelopes because they have horns. And when they would walk through some of these snares that are set up high enough to catch them over their head, their horns would hit that wire and that wire would make a very, you know, sound that was very unnatural, you know, in nature. And so they would almost always, they back up out of it. But the females and the young would feel that that pressure on the neck. And as that wire snare started to get tighter and tighter, that instinct to flight always killed them. And so they actually lost entire generations of animals because of the poaching with the wire snares. Now, once the first two, three years they got into the anti-poaching work and they were able to stop about 80% of the poaching, they started to see this incredible resurgence in, in young wildlife young kudu, impala, warthog, water buck, bush buck, these things started to come back. And within three years, the, the populations were growing exponentially mm -hmm. because they weren't being pressured by poachers, by humans. And so the wildlife really started to come back. And, um, but they're still missing, you know, I mean, certain species are locally extinct even today. You know, they had elephants there. They had rhino there. Well, the rhino and the elephants didn't walk away. They got shot by the poachers, but the rhino haven't been brought back. But there are some elephants that are just now starting to come back and use the area from here and there. But it's nothing like what it used to be. A few Cape buffalo. But the one thing that's nice there is the people now are seeing some sort of value of having the safari operator there. You've got this kind of multifaceted economic model. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's a hunting, hunting safari company, but that's one part of the puzzle. You know, they built up this fish farm. They also provide transportation because these people, they don't have cars. Maybe a few of them have bicycles and, and they may go 10, they may live 10 or 15 kilometers from, you know, the village as far as where they can go to get say medical help from a, a government clinic, medical clinic, or to go to school. They may have to go quite a ways to go and find a school. And that was one of the things that I thought that was really fascinating for me that I just didn't realize how powerful my film work could be, or, you know, just pointing a camera and showing it to somebody after yes. my first trip in, in May of 2017, came back to my home and my father-in-law was visiting my wife and the kids. And I, I knew he had a charity. He'd started a nonprofit called African children's schools. But to be honest with you, Rhonda, I had no idea really what he did. And he's a, mm -hmm. he's a heart doctor in California. So I'm in Montana. It's kind of a different world. Yeah. Uh, but he asked me what was going on. And I said, well, yeah, we're doing this and that. And I showed him some video of one of the schools that we documented, which is an open air thatched roof school with dirt floors the kids don't have any uniforms the teacher doesn't get paid and you know the, the teaching supplies were almost non-existent and these kids come into this little school and i mean literally it's the size of you know somebody's bedroom and and they literally go to school every day to try to learn you know, whatever they can be taught and I showed that video and then there was a, a concrete slab next to it with some, some concrete block. 
And I said, well, he goes, what is that? And I said, well, the, the operator told me that uh, they had tried, that the locals had tried to build the school, uh, but they'd run out of money. And this, as far as they got was the concrete slab. Yes. And so he goes, well, you know what I do, right? And I'm like, I don't know, build schools, I guess. And he's like, well, yeah, can we talk to these guys? And I'm like, oh, I guess. I mean, so the next day we were on a WhatsApp call with a safari operator. And within a week, well, they had agreed to the African children's schools had agreed in their board to fund the building of three schools, uh, along with teachers uh, residences at one of the schools, the trains, which they need to have out there. There's no running water. And then uh, also the uniforms and the salaries for the teachers to be in those schools. And it was about, you know, about 110 to 120 kids that would go to the school throughout the year. So they put that together. And I was like, wow. So, I mean, the next time I went back in 2018, the, these mm-hmm. schools were, were built and I was able to interview the, the, one of the teachers who was, and spoke really good English. And uh, what I saw there were the kids with smiles on their faces, wearing uniforms in school, getting taught English, which is the language of the international language of commerce. You know, so these kids are out in the middle of the African bush, the middle of nowhere, you know, living a subsistence lifestyle. And they now have an opportunity for a good basic education, all because of this multi-dimensional economic model. And so I, it was just really humbling to be able mm-hmm. to see the impact of just one little clip of video and how it motivated somebody to do that. Today, I was just there last month in Zambia just to kind of see things. I hadn't been there since the fall of 2020 coming out of COVID. And it's amazing. There's now, they got an order last fall for uniforms. They're now up to six classroom blocks uh, on three separate schools. And they're getting ready to build two more classroom blocks all through African children's schools. But uh, the coolest thing was, is the fact that uh, instead of 120 uniforms, they ordered 600 last fall. Wow. So uh, it's just, it's just really awing and humbling to understand, you know, the kind of impact you can have at such a basic level of humanity. Mm. And so uh, these are the leaders of Zambia tomorrow, you know, in the future, I mean, they're going to be the leaders and, and they understand, you know, part of the program that they do is they do a, a wildlife conservation program where they educate the kids about, you know, how the wildlife interacts with them, talk about human wildlife conflict. And, you know, there would be no reason for them to even get any of this education if we didn't have the opportunities to, to bring people in and have, uh, you know, the safari operator there teamed up with African children's schools. So you know, it was a really, like I said, it was just an incredible experience. Mm-hmm. Well, and for them, it's a miracle. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it's uh, like I said, this is an area. There is no Seven Elevens. There are no McDonald's. Mm-hmm. There is no grocery stores. And so, one of the other things that happened in this multifaceted uh, approach that the safari operator did is he provided soft loans to the women. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of problems in the community. One of the biggest ones, and of course, you know, we hear about AIDS, we hear about the other diseases. They do have AIDS. It's not that big of a deal there, but uh, there are other diseases they deal with there, like malaria. It's a huge problem. A lot of people deal with that. Um, sleeping sickness. This is an area that has the tetsi fly in it, which oh, basically, yes. it, you know, and it, it's a godsend in some ways and other ways it's terrible. One is it can kill you um, if you get the disease and don't treat it soon enough. But the good part of it is, is that it keeps out domestic livestock. Sheep and cows and pigs cannot survive in tetsi flies. Tetsi flies, it'll kill them. And mm-hmm. so what that does do is that allows for the wildlife <laughs> to have their place without yeah. the land being overgrazed by these, by, which is, we've seen that all over Africa. And so you also have a problem there, you know, probably one of the biggest problems I witnessed, and I witness this almost every day or every other day traveling around there, alcoholism. You know, you get these people that are, are impoverished. They can brew their own, their own alcohol. They make their own beer, very strong beer. They make some pretty nasty alcohols. And um, you're sitting around, you plant your, uh, you know, the planting season starts in October, November. They get their rains in November, December. And then you're sitting around just hoping that your, that your crops actually grow. And I've watched gentlemen start drinking at six o'clock in the morning, uh, drinking this, this beer, this hooch that they make and the wives, um, you know, it's a, it's a very different lifestyle than what we lead in the Western world. Uh, it's not uncommon to have more than one wife, sometimes three, 
Um, part of it is to be able to have plenty of kids to survive because, you know, survival there is not easy and mm -hmm. children do die of disease, malnutrition, starvation, you know, all kinds of things. So it's difficult to watch and see some of this. Also, the other thing I, I witnessed, it was very difficult. I have, I have three daughters mm -hmm. and, you know, it's pretty common to have child brides. So these are gals that have reached puberty. And when they reach puberty, of course, they can now get pregnant and their parents sell them to guys that, uh, gentlemen that I say gentlemen, sell them to, to other people within the community, other men that have a little bit of means they've had some success, maybe in, in farming or maybe, maybe poaching. And they're able to purchase these young girls at 12, 13, 14 years old. And, you know, they're expected to get pregnant immediately. And we interviewed uh, a young gal uh, that uh, when I first got to, to do interview her in, in 2017, I mean, she couldn't have been maybe 13 and she had a, a little baby, little baby boy. And uh, her husband was 31 and he actually was working as a, a day laborer for the fish farm. Uh, so they're getting a little income out of that. But I mean, it just, it was just dawning to see what her life was like. We ended up interviewing her and she, we interviewed her the next year and she had another child or she was pregnant with another child. And I've seen her every year since a matter of fact, well, there is a positive side to the story with her, but overall though, I think people don't really understand how precious life is. And it takes about 30 bags of corn for the average family of seven, eight, nine, ten 10 people to survive in this part of Africa. Well, when your daughter reaches a certain age and you've got five, six, seven, eight, nine other kids, mm -hmm. you can get 30 bags of corn for her from one of these older men as a second or third wife. So you can feed oh. your family for a year. Oh. And when you look at it in those terms, you know, I mean, especially if your crop fails, you know, and the crops, you know, the crops, you know, like I said earlier, they're, they're trying to grow maize, which is, is, is a North American crop. Yes. And so it doesn't do that well there. And you're in a situation where well, one farmer told me in an interview, he's like, listen, I grow one third of my crop for the animals. Uh, one third of my crop goes to my family and one third of my crop, just the nature shrivels up with the sun and the hot sun. And so it's a really, really difficult subsistence life. And so when you, you think about these people, you know, selling a, a child, a young girl to someone else, it, it baffles us, right? You know, it's illegal, yes. you know, yeah. but over there and the government doesn't condone it. Either. There's pro, you know, there's programs where they're trying to do away with child brides and whatnot, because these girls never get to go get an education. In the case of the gal that we interviewed that I was talking about earlier, I mean, she said, you know, I have no hope in life. I, I've never gone to school. I never will go to school and our life is difficult. And, uh, you know, a couple of times I came by her home and, and saw her, her boys and tried to bring them candy and they weren't happy. You could tell they were just, just, just not a good place. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, but there is some light at the end of the tunnel with her story. Part of, I talked about the wire snares and the fact that the operator had taken over 17,000 out in the first four years or so of being on the ground there. I had a little epiphany one day and we're sitting there and there was a huge pile of snares, wire snares. And I said, well, what do you guys do with these things? And they said, oh, we normally throw them into the, when we're pouring concrete uh, for a foundation of a building, or mm -hmm. we're building, say some dams for reservoirs, that kind of stuff. And I said, well, you know, wait a minute, let's take out the best ones. I've, I've got an idea here. And what we ended up doing is uh, we, we, we actually, I, I had my oldest daughter who's somewhat artistic and designs a little bit of jewelry. And, and I had her take some of these things. And I said, figure out how to make a bracelet out of this that people would want. And so she did. And we took it back over to Africa and we ended up hiring eight women from the community full time to repurpose these wire snares into bracelets. And so we've got five or six different styles and they make these things and we market them through the Shepherds of Wildlife uh, website. If you go to shepherdsofwildlife.org, you can see, yes. see these things. And the, and the cool thing about it, Honda, is that every one of those bracelets represents an animal saved in the wild. And that's that allows anyone anywhere right. in the world mm -hmm. to be a part of a, of a positive thing. Plus, we're providing jobs for these, these ladies in there and and, I, and I, I talked a little bit earlier about the soft loan program the operator does. We've actually started to pay that cost for, for the operator. And he's now putting out these soft loans to these women. And the reason why it's only women, and these are, these are short-term zero interest loans mm -hmm. that they can use to start their own businesses. I was talking about alcoholism, bring it yes. all back here. 
yeah. their husbands, a lot of them are alcoholics. And when they, even the game scouts, when they get their paychecks every month, the first thing they do is to go out and they go get drunk. And if there's any money left over, they might buy a prostitute. And it's just this cycle that goes on and on. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Roland Norton literally gets these wives that come to him and say, please do not give my husband a salary. I need to feed the children. Mm -hmm. And so he's also started to create, like I said, the soft loan program where I've now, when I first, when I first was out there, I, I saw a couple of uh, little stores, little huts out in this huge area. Like I said, the size of Delaware, yeah. a few huts that were stores that were about the size of your walk-in closet. I go out there now and there's little stores that popped up all over the place and almost all of them are run by women. Fantastic. And so they have created because the operators come in, he's got this, you know, the fish farm and they've now built a second fish farm in another area there. Um, they're putting ponds in that they stock with the tilapia fish and they teach the community about conservation of fish. So they get cane poles out with hooks and bobbers and, and, and they go dig out grubs. And if they want to go catch dinner, they can go out to this little pond over here that they've made that are full of fish and they can go catch one. They're not allowed to use nets, but so that it's kind of cool, this whole program that they've, mm -hmm. that they created there. So, but yeah, so it's, it's a tough life, but seeing what's happened with the people there and see the change over multiple years has just been really inspiring. And then being able to document that in a film, a documentary film, uh, Killing the Shepherd ended up in, I think we're over 40 film festivals. It's been accepted yes. into all over the world. Yes. Won over 20 major awards, including, you know, the, the best doc film, best cinematography, which are, are great things about me as a filmmaker, I guess, but probably the most important ones were awards for social justice and indigenous and human rights, because mm -hmm. that, that's really where this whole story is going to. And that's why I'm doing the films that I'm doing. You know, we're yes. in an age now where people getting, they get their information through the internet, social mm -hmm. media, you know, mainstream media on the internet. I mean, that's just where they get their information. And unfortunately, a lot of that information can be can be weaponized. It can be coerced. It can, you know, it can be spun. You know, we got all this political division in our world today and we've got wars going on. And, and unfortunately, if we don't take care of this planet, we're not going to have a place to live. Mm -hmm. And it's really imperative that we start to understand that, like I said earlier, those decisions we make every day is it a chai latte or caramel macchiato. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe what you've been been told about modern conservation, uh, you know, you, you know, people use this word called trophy hunting and they yeah. use, you know, talk about hunting and it's this negative thing. And I get it. I understand why, why it is that way, but unfortunately you have to, it's way more complex than that. Mm -hmm. When you tell me that this child bride, her dad, her dad doesn't have a job because the lion or the elephant doesn't have any value to the people because it can't be utilized in a sustainable way, you know, through well-regulated hunting, then I have to say, well, what are you, a neocolonialist? Mm -hmm. I mean, come on, why are we sitting here telling these people that, you know, in a sovereign country that they have no basic human rights? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, these animals provide for these people. And because they provide for them, these people are able to have good paying jobs where they can buy food to feed their family. Their children have access to healthcare and they have access to, to uh, you know, for them to also get a great education. So, I mean, these are things that are really important that we all take for granted in the Western world, yes. but these other people are fighting for these things every day. And then you kind of have to sit back and ask yourself, I mean, are we going to say, okay, well, you know, we don't like it. We don't like hunting for say, you know, or any kind of sustainable use of the, you know, you know, farming of the wildlife or whatever going on. But at the end of the day, are we going to provide those jobs? I mean, these people aren't looking for handouts, but I mean, these people mm -hmm. need jobs. They need access, mm -hmm. like I said, to healthcare and education and these things do it. It works. And it's not an area that photo safaris will be able to provide or plug that hole that those people have in their culture. And so, and the other thing too is culture. I mean, these people have been using wildlife. I mean, let's face it, folks, since the beginning of time, as long as humans yes. have walked on two feet and it doesn't matter what your religion is or your cultural background or where you live, humans have, have, have hunted and uh, it's not a bad thing. You know, I, I, I do these presentations and and I, you know, doing a film screenings and people watch these films and watch Killing mm -hmm. the Shepherd. And they're like, well, do we really need to kill any animals? And I'm like, well, guys, um, just do a show of hands. How many of you in the room here have bought a McDonald's Happy Meal? 
And of course, everybody raises their hand. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let me clue you into something here. There's nothing happy about a happy meal. No. You understand me? There's nothing yeah. happy about a happy meal. It doesn't matter if you got the cheeseburger or the chicken nugget. You paid someone to raise and slaughter an animal to provide for your family. Yeah. You know, I mean, without the death, I think the last UN data I saw, about 60 billion land-based animals and 1.4 trillion water-based animals are killed annually to feed humanity. That's mm -hmm. 8 billion humans. And if we don't have food in our bellies, what happens to society? We saw yes. that during COVID, didn't we? Yes. You know, we see that in war, war storm, you know, Syria, we're seeing that in Ukraine. When you don't have food, you have complete dysfunction. You have a destruction of the human society. Yes. And so that's why we need to be really careful about making decisions for other people in other parts of the world. And even at home, um, you know, I've done this film in Africa. I'm now working on a film that we're just wrapping up in Scotland. It's yes. called The Last Keeper. Uh, mm -hmm. It's about the, the rural folks that have been working on the land, doing conservation work again, utilizing, mm -hmm. you know, the wildlife uh, resources in a wise way. Uh, but in that case, you have all kinds of historical grievances. You know, I mean, th this story goes back to the feudal system that was brought on by William the Conqueror, the Normans, and, and you mm -hmm. know, in the, in the 10th and 11th century, you've got it leading up to today's world where, you know, we, we literally have people fighting over land use. And yes. so you have these rural communities, which is made up of gamekeepers and gillies, which are fishing guides and deer stalkers that they utilize the wildlife to provide for themselves, uh, for the jobs that they have. And then you've got a group of people that are much more of an urban, I would even say elite urban population uh, that are pushing the, uh, this mantra and idea of rewilding in order to control the land. So you have a little back, back of history of Scotland in 1746. I don't know how many people have, are listening here have watched the uh, Outlander television series uh, where, they live, where the gal goes back in time and, mm -hmm. and lives with the Scottish clans and, and goes ahead and, and goes through the whole world of, of what it was like to live back in the, in the late 16 and early 1700s. Mm -hmm. But in 1746, um, you know, you had the end of the Jacobite revolution there where you had two different families fighting for the king of of uh, of great britain uh which obviously now is the united kingdom uh and so they basically uh uh got into a situation where uh they did away with the clan system in 1746 when most of the scottish people lost the lost the battle of culloden um the you weren't allowed to speak gaelic which is scottish that's their native language yes. uh the tartans the bagpipes all that was thrown to the heap and they weren't allowed to use it but the biggest thing that happened there prior to that battle, prior to that, that change in their society, was that all lands were considered communal land. So you would go out and run your sheep and your goats out there, and it was no big deal. You, you, you were in the glen, the valley. The clan leader was your leader, but you know the whole purpose of you being there was literally to have more kids. You could raise more soldiers if you needed to, uh, to go ahead and fight whatever the clan you know, wanted you to do. But at the end, you know, these people were, were removed from the land because they went from a communal land system to a landed layered system. So the clan leader to become the landowner. And, and that was all dictated by the King of England. Yes. And now the idea that was, is that the landowner wanted to be able to see some sort of return on their land. And then in short, they found out that they could remove the people from the land and they could put five, 6,000 sheep in there and get you know, exponentially more uh, money from that uh, by allowing a sheep farmer to come in there and, and push their sheep around if they remove the people. And that's what started this whole migration, or they call it the clearances, the Highland clearances, mm -hmm. where we see so many of our Scottish ancestors, I'm, you know, I'm mostly Scottish, English, and Irish, like probably many of the people listening to this here in North America. Yes. <laughs> well, our ancestors came over, a lot of them were forced uh, on ships. Mm -hmm. Or they were said, they were, they were literally said they weren't welcome in their homes. And, and in case some of these people have been living on these lands for hundreds of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, if not thousands mm -hmm. of years. Mm -hmm. And so that's what caused all of these people to come to North America, to come to Canada, to come to the United States. And, um, and then, you know, this, we're into this world now where we have these people, this urban population between Glasgow and Edinburgh, this 
belt there where you know most of the five million people that live in scotland live today and remind yourselves um, scotland is not a very big place geographically it's about the size of the u.s state of new jersey so but they uh they've always had a a big i don't know they've always had big britches that they've always uh you know the scottish people as they've traveled around there were some phenomenal engineers and other people that uh you know that have become you know over the over our history have been very influential in, in industrialization and everything else and so it's real interesting to see how that how that what that happened then in the late so from 1750s on through the early 1800s you saw these people removed from the land and today you know when i spent i think we spent 120 days over about 15 16 months in scotland documenting what's going on with these people today both the rewilders and and the the people that said so the keepers and the gillies and the and the stalkers and they're all having this battle over how the land's going to be used. But one side, the rewilding side, the urban people have the votes and they have the ear of government. So the government's creating all kinds of policies and laws that are making it almost possible for these people to continue their lifestyles. Mm-hmm. And to the point where um, I don't know most people have seen Scottish whiskey and you almost always see the deer or the stag, right? Yes. That's kind of the iconic symbol of Scotland and the Highlands. Well, I've probably have driven five or 6,000 miles around Scotland over the last year and a half. And I don't think just driving around, I've seen six or 10 deer off the road. I live in Montana. I can drive three quarters of a mile to my mailbox from my house and I'll see more, more deer than that. Yes. And so it's, it's kind of, it's unfortunate, you know, that, uh, that there is a group of people there and it's eerily, and I mean eerily reminiscent of those clearances in the 17, early 1800s, 1700s, early 1800s. And uh, it's a war over who's going to control the land and who's going to have that power. And so that's what the film really is, is that we kind of, kind of tell a very broad based neutral story on, on these different keys. So we've got all the key people from both sides involved. I don't think anyone's ever been able to get them all on one film before. Uh, mm-hmm. It's the first time it's ever been done. Right. And uh, it's definitely stirring up a hornet's nest from what I can oh, see so yes, far. Oh, yes, it would. Yes, but, it absolutely But again, would. at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you know, these people all want the same thing. They all want to have healthy habitats. They want to have wildlife. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just, you have to realize that in order to have wildlife, it has to provide some sort of value again, and it provides a value to, to everyone if you use it the right way. And of course, wildlife renews itself every year, right? You know, in some cases, you know, it renews itself multiple times in one year. So in case of elephants, it renews itself every two years. Every two um, years. Yeah. But what we're looking at is the fact that you're always going to be in a scenario where the science will tell you everything on the planet is programmed to overpopulate the carrying capacity of the land. So what does that mean? It means that there's a reason why there's 8 billion humans on the planet. That's just the way we're wired in so much as to ensure that we have species survival. When we talked about Zambia and we've seen the exponential growth of, of various species of antelope and mm-hmm. warthog and things like that down in Zambia, that's because mother nature is programmed to just put as many animals on there because the more animals on there, the better opportunity is for species survival. And mm-hmm. so with that in our modern day and age, we know that we need a whole segment of the land for us to grow crops on, right? Or to to provide for our cities and our streets and our highways and our railroads and our airports. Well, then that means that that wildlife can't live there. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, your house probably, you you probably have some wood in your furniture. You probably have two by fours or studs in your walls. Yes. Well, that's all, that was all wildlife habitat at one time. Mm -hmm. Where your house sits, whether it's in a city or a suburban area or out in the country, where your house sits used to be wildlife habitat. Yes. So we just have to realize that, you know, we have a big thumbprint on mm-hmm. every place on the world and uh, we have to do a better job of, of taking care of it. And we have to ensure that we make sure that all the wildlife can be a part of this equation, not just us. Mm-hmm. You're listening to the Rhonda Grant show right now, whose podcast has been treated with digital audio health by my sponsor, Cymatrax. And today I am speaking with Tom Opry. Uh, Tom, let uh, people know how they can reach out to you and watch your film and also purchase your book. 
Yeah, thanks a lot, Rhonda. You know, it's great to be on this podcast and, and be able to talk to all your listeners and your audience uh, on such a critically important topics that we're doing here. But uh, the film Killing the Shepherd, it's available all over the world on various platforms, including uh, Apple TV, Amazon, uh, Tubi, YouTube. Uh, it's got an IMDb page, Rotten Tomatoes, so you, you know it's you can find it very easily. Uh, you can also watch it on our website, uh, Killing the Shepherd com or go to the shepherds of wildlife.org websites and so we've got a player there for it and so uh, all our my book is also available on the website and also on amazon kindle uh, and we should have an audio version live here sooner than later so it's been done it's uploaded we're just waiting for final approval but uh, you'll be able to find that on uh, shepherdswildlife.org any of our products and, and if anybody's interested in, in saving wildlife you know we have our african snare bracelets that yes. uh, our local community women in africa are making for us and so every one of those is an animal saved in the wild and if you go to our website you'll also be able to find those at uh, shepherdswildlife.org they're not very expensive but uh, all that money goes towards making sure that we can protect uh, those environments, educate people, and uh, and make sure that those women have good positive opportunities in their lives so uh, we don't end up with more child brides in the middle of nowhere, Zambia. Mm-hmm. And right now is we're talking in September, but maybe our listening audience can think about what's coming up is Christmas and what a beautiful gift to wildlife and to help the people of Africa and is to go to the site and and purchase these for their girls. Yeah, no, and I appreciate all the help we can get. And, uh, you know, if there's, uh, if it, you know, one of the things that's really great about the internet is you get access to things like me. So if yes. you want to go to our social media c- accounts, you know, we're on Twitter and, and Facebook, Instagram, all, all the main platforms that are out there. You can find me under Tom Opry, O-P-R-E, on most places out there, or you can go to Shepherds of Wildlife and find them also. They've got pages out there and any support we can get from people like it, share it, be greatly helpful to to our mission, which is to reconnect society with nature, ensure that we have a, a better place for all of the creatures on this planet to live in the future. Exactly. What extraordinary discovery have you found in your life? (laughs) <laughs> now I used to say, yes, I know. I used to say discoveries. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were going to ask me the question about you know, was this calling. So I will. Uh, well, that'll be the next question. So yes. uh, extra, you know, again, I think I mentioned the fact that just the power of my cameras, you know, being able to oh, to right. document things that happen and and uh, that's I didn't, you know, being a commercial cinematographer and filmmaker, yeah, you know, you're making money, you're a gun for hire. But now that I'm working with the Shepherds of Wildlife Society, the stuff we do is just so much more meaningful and mm-hmm. has such a much broader and more important impact. And, and that's probably, I would, it's the only thing I could ever say about anything. I mean, to the point, Rhonda, I've dedicated the rest of my life to this endeavor. I, I literally want to make sure that this place is a lot better than we found it. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Do you feel that you've been called or crafted your mission or a bit of both? Well, you know, I think we've had a lot of turmoil in our society, you know, you know, we, we've got all this division going on. Of course, in, you know, 2020 COVID hit us and, you know, literally mm-hmm. knocked my business, my commercial film business in a hole. I mean, for two years there, we couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. And every time I tried to go back to that model that had been tried and true, my foundation, right. I kept getting turned back around back to the nonprofit and mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, you know, the money's really good when you're doing these big commercial jobs. It's very alluring. It's been, you know, I've been very blessed to have a very successful career doing it. But who's going to remember the last TV commercial I made? Nobody. Yes. But if I can change a large segment of our Western civilization and get them to understand what modern conservation truly is, the active Mm -hmm. use and the wise use of our natural resources and ensuring that we have these, you know, these healthy habitats for everything to live in. I think that's going to be a heck of a lot better legacy than, than doing a TV commercial for McDonald's or, or Ford or somebody like that. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I'd say it's a, it's, it's definitely a calling and it's a calling that uh, never stops calling. It's going to keep going mm-hmm. and going and going. Yes. You can't ignore it. It, it reminds you every day that that's what you should be doing when you're called. That's what, how I see it. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for being on the show, Tom. You know, you have a wealth of knowledge that you're sharing with my audience, our audience, and you're affecting people who can affect what you're doing. And that's what I love about it. So thank you very much for being on the show. 
Thank you, Rhonda. And thank you to all the people out there. Please go to shepherdsofwildlife.org. We'd love to have every bit of support we can get. Yes. And we'll have all of that in the show notes too. So they may refer to that.